you're listening to Radio Maria England, and this is Father Toby with uh, one of three programs of What Jesus Saw from the Cross. And we begin by praying the Angelus together. The angel of the Lord declared to Mary, and she conceived by the Holy Spirit. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Behold the handmaid of the Lord. Be it done unto me according to thy word. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. And the Word was made flesh, and dwelt among us. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Pray for us, O Holy Mother of God, that we may be made worthy of the promises of Christ. Let us pray. Pour forth, we beseech thee, O Lord, thy grace into our hearts, that we to whom the incarnation of Christ thy Son was made known by the message of an angel, may by his passion and cross be brought to the glory of his resurrection, through the same Christ our Lord. Amen. And so in today's program and uh, and in the in the two that follow follow it i just want to provide you with a a selection of readings and maybe with a little bit of commentary from me from uh, some of my favorite books that deal with the the last days of jesus's life the the title of these programs is taken from the the book by ag certelange uh french dominican um called what Jesus saw from the cross, and we might well um, read from that uh, tomorrow, um, depending on uh, you know where the spirit moves me. But today, I want to to start with a reading from a wonderful book called the The Last Hours of Jesus, from Gethsemane to Golgotha, and it's by uh, Passionist priest Father Ralph uh, Gorman, and uh, and it deals with the the last week of Jesus's life. And we begin today at uh, chapter four, which deals with the Last Supper. The Last Supper was one of the most important and significant events of Christ's life. A detailed treatment of this supper, of the institution of the Holy Eucharist and of the beautiful discourse that followed it, belongs more properly to a life of Christ than to a book that treats specifically of his passion. Um, we shall confine our attention, therefore, to whatever pertains directly to the events that were to follow on that night and the next day. The Passover was the greatest of all the Jewish feasts. It was the annual commemoration of the delivery of the Israelites from the bondage of Egypt. It was celebrated on the 15th month of Nisan, roughly our April, but since the Jewish day began at sunset, the feast really began at sunset of the 14th Nisan. 
the Passover meal constituted the main part of the celebration, and it was eaten on the evening of the 14th Nisan. For Christ and his apostles, and, and undoubtedly for many others also, the Paschal meal was to be eaten that year on Thursday evening. The apostles knew that he would want to eat the Paschal meal in Jerusalem, and yet they also knew that neither he nor they had an abode in the city. It would not be easy to find suitable quarters because of the crowds, and they were concerned that Jesus had taken no step toward making the necessary arrangements. Their uneasiness became so great that they finally approached Jesus with the question, Where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? Christ selected Peter and John and directed them to go and make the necessary preparations. He told them how they were to get in touch with one who was evidently a friend or disciple and who would provide the necessary guest chamber. The anonymous benefactor showed Peter and John a large upper room furnished which he placed at the disposal of Jesus and his apostles. The guest chamber was usually the whole or a part of the second story of the house. I think in English we'd call that the, the, first, the first floor. When it was a part, the rest was used as a balcony or a terrace, opening on an inner court and sheltered from the public gaze. The approach was by a staircase from the inner court. Here guests were received, thus avoiding the first floor where were located the stables, the kitchen, the lodgings of the servants, and the rooms for ordinary family living. The guest room was furnished with low divans, cushions and carpets. Before the appointed hour, Peter and John had completed preparation for the paschal meal, and Jesus and the ten apostles arrived at the upper room. It was about six o'clock. All waited expectantly for the blast of silver trumpets, blown by the priests at the temple, announcing the exact moment of sundown and the beginning of the meal. The Lord commanded that the first Passover be eaten hastily, with the loins girt, shoes on the feet, a staff in the hand. By the time of Christ all this had been changed, and the Israelites, as a sign that they were free, ate the Passover reclining. In the middle of the room there was a low table. Around this table were rugs, and cushions on which the guests reclined on their left elbows, leaving their right hands free to reach food from the table. Sometimes the tables were round and surrounded by guests. At other times the places for the guests formed three sides of a square, leaving one side open for the convenience of the servers. The Paschal Supper began with a first cup of wine, and a prayer calling down a blessing on the wine and on the feast. Then bitter herbs, unleavened bread, 
and a sauce in which to dip the herbs, were brought in and placed on the table with the paschal lamb. The second cup of wine was poured, and the leader of the group explained the meaning of the feast. The lamb was eaten along with the bitter herbs. The Jews were familiar with the use of forks, but for this meal they used their hands. Dipping the herbs into the sauce and using pieces of the flat loaves of bread in their fingers to pick meat from the platter. A third and a fourth cup of wine were poured, accompanied by a benediction of the repast and the recitation of a group of psalms known as the Hallow. I'm just conscious as I was reading there that actually when speaking about the second story of the house as this American priest describes it, I said in English we would call that the, uh, the first floor. Um, and by mistake implied that Americans don't speak English. Obviously they do. What I meant to say was in England we would call that the first floor. But a couple of um, questions that sometimes arise uh, about the, the Last Supper um, Father Ralph deals with in some footnotes. And here I just want to, to share with you, first of all, the one that he makes about the apparent contradiction um, between the dating of the Last Supper in the first three Gospels and in St. John, which sometimes perplexes some people. And, and the answer is, we'll see, is that we're not completely sure, um, but also that we shouldn't stress too much about it and that we can understand how this uh, apparent discrepancy um, exists and yet sort of doesn't undermine the, the sort of the veracity and the of the scriptures and the trust that we place in that they contain the fullness of truth. So as he writes, there is an apparent contradiction between the first three Gospels on the one hand and St. John on the other as to the time of the celebration of the Passover. It is not a question of law, but of fact. According to the law, the Paschal Lamb was immolated on the 14th Nisan and eaten that evening after sundown. In the first three Gospels, the Passover took place on Thursday evening, which would therefore be the 14th Nisan. Yet even in these Gospels, there are indications that the next day was not the Passover, at least not for all. For example, Joseph brought a linen shroud, the holy women prepared spices and ointments, both Jews and disciples carried arms, and Simon of Cyrene was returning from the fields, evidently from work. None of these activities was permitted on the great feast. In St. John, the Jews ate the Passover meal on Friday, and the Passover itself was on Saturday. On Friday morning, the leaders of the Jews refused to enter the courtyard of the Praetorium of Pilate lest they be defiled, and therefore unable to eat the Passover meal. But our Lord and his apostles had already eaten it on the night before. There are other similar indications in St. John's Gospel. We do not know the solution of this difficulty because we do not have the facts. Many explanations are possible. The best are based on the fact that all did not agree on just which day was the 15th Nissan. 
The Dead Sea Scrolls prove that the Qumran sect followed a different calendar from other Jews. It was probably an ancient religious calendar. We do not know whether this sect had a wide following among the other Jews, but that is not so important as the fact that there was a disagreement at the time of Christ over the day on which the 15th Nisan fell. Some Catholic scholars are now of the opinion that Christ and his apostles ate the Last Supper on Tuesday rather than Thursday evening. The Pharisees postponed sacred times for various reasons. Sometimes they lengthened the preceding month, for instance, in order to prevent the Day of Atonement from falling on the day before or after the Sabbath. The Jews did not have a calendar fixed by astronomical means. The new month began when the new moon was visible to the naked eye. Such a method could lead to doubts and disagreements. Something similar occurred in 1955 when Egyptians began Ramadan a day later than other Muslim countries because the religious authorities in Egypt were prevented by haze from seeing the new moon on the first night of its appearance. Um, so perhaps as you listen to that, um, it doesn't uh, completely uh, solve for you when exactly on which night the Passover occurred, but I'd say the most important thing is that the sort of the apparent discrepancy between the synoptics and John doesn't mean that one of them is wrong and the other one is right, um, and that therefore we need to start worrying about uh, the reliability of Scripture, but also to remember that the most important things about this meal is not so much when it happened, but that Jesus was eating a Passover meal with his disciples. He institutes uh, a new liturgy, the the most profound liturgy, the liturgy that is at the heart of our faith. He institutes the priesthood. He gives the model of 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 service. He institutes the 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 Eucharist. Um, so what what happened at that meal? Um, we will go into more. Um, after we listen to this piece of music uh, sung by Michael Crawford um, called the, the Sacrifice of Song, He Washed Their Feet. Breathe life and 
listening to Radio Maria England and this is Father Toby um, with a, an Easter special during the Triduum um, titled What Jesus Saw from the Cross and we've just been reading from Father Ralph Gorman's book The Last Hours of Jesus um, dealing with the the Last Supper and we've just led up with a bit of a bit of background and how the place for the meal came to be chosen and now we move into the Last Supper itself. 
As the apostles started to take their places to begin the meal, a dispute broke out among them over precedence. Jesus quietly rebuked them and then gave them a lesson in true humility. And isn't it, doesn't it say something about the, the human heart and our, and our fickleness about sometimes in, in moments of such magnitude we can get preoccupied with things that are so trivial. Um, and I know certainly such thoughts have sometimes come upon my heart at mass, not necessarily about precedence, but how about this ought to be so-and-so and so-and-so ought to be doing such and such, and it's just not very fruitful. And it just reminds me that, you know, as St. John the, the Baptist said, I, I need to decrease so that he may increase. And, and the problem isn't so much that we that we have such thoughts sometimes that they pop into our head the problem is that we that we indulge them that we we start to sort of think through it as opposed to focusing on what matters more um, and we can imagine even jesus quietly rebuking us and giving us a lesson in true humility as happens at the last supper he put aside his outer garments girded himself with a towel poured water into a basin, and began to wash and dry their feet. After overcoming Peter's resistance, Jesus spoke rather cryptic words. You are clean, but not all. St. John tells us that Jesus referred to Judas. It is likely that our Lord spoke these words as he moved on from Peter to begin washing the feet of Judas thus giving the traitor a broad hint that he was aware of his evil intention. When they had reclined again around the table, Jesus insisted further on the lesson he had just taught. If you know these things, he said, blessed shall you be if you do them. Referring again to Judas, Jesus went on to say, I do not speak of you all. And lest the apostles think that Christ had made a mistake in selecting the traitor to be an apostle, he continued, I know whom I have chosen. And then he explained that the choice was made, that a prophecy concerning himself might be realized, that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. This quotation is taken from a psalm ascribed to King David. While these words refer directly to David, they refer indirectly to Jesus Christ, as David was a prefiguring of the Messiah. Christ tells them in advance, so that they will realize later that this prophecy refers to him. St. John, quick to note the sentiments of Jesus, tells us that he was troubled in spirit. It is obvious that Jesus was disturbed by the presence of Judas. He who had wept over the blindness of the people of Jerusalem was saddened now by the presence of a chosen one who resisted all his advances, persisting in his evil course. Again Jesus spoke of the betrayal, and this time in words that sound like the solemn deposition of a witness against an accused. Amen, I say to you, one of you will betray me. 
one who is eating with me. Jesus reveals in these words the reason for his trouble of soul. He will be betrayed, and betrayed by one of those now eating at table with him, one admitted to his friendship and intimacy, one of the twelve. The meaning of Jesus' words finally penetrated the incredulous minds of the apostles. They realized from his troubled mood that he was not using figures of speech. The apostles in turn became sad and troubled. They looked around at one another doubtfully, but their glances were shamefaced rather than suspicious. Each was conscious of his own good intentions, yet feared that he might be the one to whom Jesus was referring. They began to inquire among themselves which of them it might be that was about to do this. Their inquiries led nowhere, so all turned to our Lord for an answer to the disturbing question, and each asked, Is it I? Jesus' answer evidently interrupted the questioning, as Judas put his question later. Jesus still avoided designating the traitor and replied in general terms, It is one of the twelve who dips with me in the dish. It is likely that this expression is only a somewhat different way of saying, One who is eating with me. Jesus then continued, The Son of Man indeed goes his way as it is written of him. Jesus was not deceived by a trap laid for him, he was not forced. He walked the way of the cross of his own free will in the manner foretold by the prophets of the Old Testament, betrayed by a friend. Yet the fact that the betrayal was the fulfillment of a prophecy offers no excuse to the betrayer, for Christ went on to say, But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It were better for that man if he had not been born. These are the most terrible words Jesus spoke during his life on earth. Their menace is escape inescapable. They are a direct threat of eternal damnation to Judas. Certainly it would have been better for Judas to have been born if a time could ever come when he would enjoy the beatific vision in heaven. But this possibility seems clearly eliminated by Christ's statement. As we read through this um, passage, um, I think it's rather sort of perplexing to us as we think about the fulfillment of prophecies. Um, if we speak about Christ also knowing what Judas was doing, and yet we still have to retain in our heads the idea that Judas was not compelled to sin, um, that he did not have to. Um, and the first thing to say is that there there is a, a little bit of a mystery to us here. In the same way, though, that human free will is a is a little bit of a, a mystery to us, or or free choice, even, even when we examine our our own choices. Uh, 
you know, I think we're a little bit inscrutable to ourselves. We don't always completely understand why we did what we did, and that's how we end up doing things that that we we regret. Or as you know, St. Paul writes, "I do that which I do not wish to to do," and we don't do the very things that we do wish we we did. Um, but what I think is important to say is that I don't think Judas picked. I don't think Jesus picked Judas as an apostle in order that Judas might betray him. Um, rather that Jesus doesn't regret his his choice of Judas because he knew from the outset that his betrayal was going to going to come about and Jesus isn't trying to dodge the way that he knew his life would inevitably go. He doesn't regret his his choice because he doesn't desire to escape from the the inevitable end that living a life of perfect love and perfect truth will lead to in this fallen world, which is um, on the best of days, sort of in indifference, on worst days hatred, and on the the worst of days the the persecution that will put you to to death. And as I was saying in, in, in my word for today's, I think it was on on Tuesday, I think in Jesus in, in all these sort of comments about, um, you know, one of you will betray me, you know, one who, who dips his bread in the, in the bowl with me. He's giving Judas a, a chance to, to, do, to do differently. He's giving Judas a chance to, to change his mind. He's not naming and shaming Judas because he knows then that the other disciples would simply stop Judas. But rather what Jesus is offering, inviting to is a, is a change, of, change of heart to Judas. He's inviting Judas to see the reality of what he's about to do. He's inviting Judas to see the reality of, of Christ's love for him, that, that even as he as he comes before him with this evil desire, with this bitterness on his heart, that Christ will not send him away, that it's only Judas who, who will make the decision to, to go away. He's inviting Judas to stay with me, to choose differently. But as we know, tragically, Judas doesn't. But thank God for, for our sake that Jesus doesn't doesn't abandon, um, doesn't abandon the cross. That Jude, that Jesus doesn't doesn't betray the Father's will, and yet he is prepared to to suffer and to die for the sake of our sins. Now I want to go to another piece of music, and this time we're going to uh, listen to an instrumental from. Uh, an album by Adrian Snell called The The Passion, and we're going to listen to the piece entitled The Last Supper.
bosom. They referred to the place one occupied at table in relation to another, and not to one's posture. When St. John says that the beloved disciple was reclining at Jesus's bosom, he meant simply that he was at Jesus's right. From what follows, it is clear that Judas reclined near Jesus, possibly at his left, and that Peter was at a little distance, no closer certainly than the right of John the beloved disciple. Peter made a sign to attract John's attention, and then said in a low voice, Who is it of whom he speaks? Thereupon John leaned back until his head was directly over, or even touching the breast of Jesus, and whispered, Lord, who is it? Our Lord answered, It is he for whom I shall dip the bread and give it to him. Jesus then took a piece of bread and with it in his fingers picked a choice morsel of meat from the dish of lamb and offered it to Judas. This was a delicate mark of attention on the part of the host. As John watched Judas accept the morsel, he must have experienced a feeling of shock and loathing. There is no evidence from the Gospel whether he revealed to Peter the identity of the betrayer. It is highly unlikely that he did, or the volatile Peter might have been at Judas's throat. At this moment, St. John again mentions the influence of Satan, and after the morsel, Satan entered into him. 
It would seem that in designating him as a traitor, Jesus excluded Judas from the apostolic college. As Judas became more and more abandoned by God, Satan became freer to exercise his power over him. Each rejected grace, each rebuffed overture from Jesus, weakened his will and reduced his power of resistance to satanic suggestion. The last hope for Judas had faded. Jesus could expect nothing from him now. His efforts to win him back had failed. He turned to him and said quietly, What thou dost, do quickly. Jesus wanted to be relieved of the presence of the traitor so that he could spend the little time that was left with the faithful eleven. The, other, the others overheard Jesus' words and thought that he was directing Judas to make some purchase for the feast or to give alms to the poor. Now what um, Father Ralph sort of picks up from that line, what thou dost do quickly, um, is, is different to what I spoke on my uh, sermon on, on Tuesday on Word, Word for Today. And I think it's a, a very beautiful insight um, because when we think about the sort of the love of Christ and when we think about people who, who love infinitely, there can be a certain sort of temptation to to take advantage of that love, to think, well, it doesn't matter what I do because I'm loved. But what Father Ralph draws out is is the pain in those words, the pain to be to love so much and yet to be rejected. And I think those who love most feel more pain in the in the face of uh, of a rejection of that love, not less. Just because somebody's incredibly loving doesn't mean that in the in the face of rejection they're like, oh well, that's fine. Like I'll just I just keep on keep on keep on on loving. Rather, no, they feel more. And that's sometimes we see also with the with the saints who who speak sometimes of themselves being the the greatest sinners. And this isn't some sort of sense of false humility. Um, oh, they go, oh, I'm very holy, um, but you know, look at me, I'm such a great sinner. But rather because because they've entered even more deeply into love, they know how painful the rejection of of love is, and so they experience even greater sort of agony at their at their own sin because they've experienced in an even greater way the enormous love that the Lord has for us, and so they know what an enormous sort of betrayal and, and, and pain our sin cons constitutes. Um, they realize the great, great travesty of sin and how we were made for so much more and how Christ calls us into so much more. And so now I want to take another music break and we're going to listen to a, another song from that album by Adrian Snell, The, the Passion. And this time it's his piece, which is entitled simply Betrayal.
One can well imagine St. John watching in stunned silence as Judas rose from his place after receiving the morsel from Jesus and started to leave. As he passed through the doorway, John caught a glimpse of the darkness that seemed to envelop Judas like a cloak. The outer darkness contrasted sharply with the light of the supper room. John is evidently struck by the contrast because he adds, it was night. The brief sentence of John's makes a profound impression. It would seem that John saw in the darkness more than a mere physical phenomenon. The darkness into which Judas goes is a symbol. This is the hour of darkness which men prefer to the light. It is the hour of the power of darkness which has taken possession of the soul of Judas. It is into this darkness that the light shines, and the darkness does not comprehend it. 
After the supper, Jesus spoke earnestly to the eleven apostles, warning them of what was about to take place. During his discourse, he made the stunning announcement, You will all be scandalized this night because of me. Jesus makes no exceptions. All of them will be scandalized because of him. The nature of the scandal is indicated by Christ's reference to a text of Zechariah that referred to him. I will smite the shepherd and the sheep of the and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Events of that very night and the next day would indeed bring about the fulfillment of our Lord's words. To the apostles first, as to the Jews later, the passion of Christ was a stumbling block. In spite of all his forecasts and warnings, in spite of his efforts to prepare them in advance, the apostles refused to take to face the facts, and the awful reality of Christ's sufferings and death swept over them with the suddenness and completeness of a tidal wave. Again, Peter ignored what our Lord was saying and interrupted in order to return to the subject that was on his mind. He flatly contradicted Christ. Our Lord had said, you will all be scandalized. Peter now declared loudly, even though all shall be scandalized. Not I, Lord. Peter was full of self-confidence. He was perfectly willing to admit that all the others would be scandalized, but he never. Peter's protestations had no effect on Jesus. Our Lord's reply is incisive and definitive. Every word adds clean clearness and emphasis to the prediction. Amen, I say to thee, today, this very night, before a cock crows twice, thou wilt deny me thrice. The events of the night will bear out the truth of Christ's prophecy regarding both Peter and the other, other, and the other apostles. But Peter was not to be silenced. He brushed aside Christ's clear, formal and definite statement and went on speaking more vehemently. Instead of reflecting on Christ's superior knowledge, he looked into his own heart and saw only his sentiments of loyalty and devotion. Completely overlooking his human frailty, he declared boastfully, Even if I should have to die with thee, I will not deny thee. And unwilling to be outdone by Peter, the other apostles now joined in with similar declarations of fidelity. Did Christ make any answer? If he did, the evangelists have not recorded it. Probably he did not, as he knew that a series of events was already beginning to take shape in the shadows of the darkened city that would answer for him. But leaving the supper room, Jesus and the apostles sang the group of psalms known as the Hallel. This was the part of the prescribed ritual for the Passover, as we have said. Then they descended to the street and started eastward toward the Garden of Gethsemane. It must have been between ten and eleven o'clock by this time, although we can only conjecture. The full paschal moon had risen high over the mountains of Moab to the east, and shed a pale brilliance over the silent city. 
If tradition is correct, the group must have passed very near the palace of Caiaphas, where preparations were already afoot for the capture of Christ this very night. Jesus and the apostles descended into the valley and left the city through the fountain gate. Once outside the city walls, they walked northward on a path that followed the brook Cedron, which was dry at this time of year. At this point, the Cedron is a deep, dark gorge that separates the city on the west from the Mount of Olives on the east. As they walked along the path at the bottom of the ravine, they were in darkness, but above them the moon lighted the towering walls of the city on the left, and on the right shed a soft radiance on the olive trees that covered the slope of the mount. At a point just opposite the temple, not far from the present bridge, they turned eastward and mounted toward the Garden of Gethsemane on the lower slopes of the hill. The journey from the upper room was over difficult terrain and probably required about half an hour. One of the things that, that strikes me as we, as we read this description of, uh, of Father Ralph's is how closely sort of good and evil uh, are, are taking, taking place in this period, that the goodness of Christ prepared to, to lay down his life for his friends. In their midst, Judas, um, then so close by Caiaphas, plotting with others in order to bring about the downfall of Jesus with, with Judas. Um, and it reminds me of how Pope Benedict once said when we were in the, in the midst probably of the, the worst time of the, the revelations of the abuse scandals that have occurred within the church and where some people were starting to think, okay, yeah, terrible, terrible things have, have gone in the church, and, but we're starting to, to suggest that a, that a bit of a, a witch hunt um, was, was, going, was going on and that the church was being unfairly targeted. But Pope Benedict um, pointed out that the, the most grievous sins occur within in the church and not outside of it. And he, and he, and he, he thanked um, those from outside for bringing the, the evil that, that was occurring at the, the heart of the church into the, into the light. And so we have to be sort of careful about our complacency of thinking, oh, well, just because I go through the motions of religion, just because I'm at church, therefore I'm okay. Because as we see with Judas, as we see with the horrendous things that have uh, occurred in, in our lifetime, it's easy to be, you know, close at the church. It's easy to be there in person, but very far away in our hearts. And another thing which sort of occurred to me, um, a couple of times as I as I made a, a bit of a, a slip of the tongue and, and referred to sort of Judas as Jesus and Jesus as Judas was thinking well how similar those names are and that Judas was called to be like Jesus um, that was who he was called to become he was called to become another Christ um, and yet he fell so far away from it and there but for the grace of of God go we too, and so we must always remain sort of watchful, alert, and 
and desirous of of loving more and repeat the the those words of the the Lord in in Gethsemane and those and those words that that He asks us to to pray in the the Our Father when we say, "Thy will be done," because as soon as we start trying to assert our will, then things go very wrong. I just want to close this program today by playing the uh, the death of the swan from the the ballet um, Swan Lake by Tchaikovsky. The reason. I picked this is there's a very very beautiful scene in the film of gods and men where the group of monks um, in the Atlas Mountains in Algeria who've chosen to stay and be with the people who they've chosen to to serve in spite of the the very clear and present danger to their to their lives now and it's an incredibly moving scene as they undergoing their own last supper um one of the monks in very french style pulls out a a good bottle of red that he's been saving and puts on this cassette and it's an incredibly moving scene in an, in an incredibly moving film which i'd i'd recommend to you